Education Podcast listeners. This is Kevin Eva, editor-in-chief of the journal. Uh, today, I get to double my pleasure as I'll, I'll be speaking with Caitlin Schrapel and Ashley Amick, who are co-first authors on a paper coming out in the June 2022 edition of Medical Education, the title of which is Who's on Your Team? Question mark, especially identity and interposition conflict during admission. The specialties that are the focus of conflict in this paper are internal medicine and emergency medicine, and that obviously came from your own backgrounds, but maybe I'll ask the two of you to just explain your roles at the University of Washington. Caitlin, if you don't mind starting. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Caitlin Strapel. I'm a faculty member with the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Washington, and I'm the Assistant Program Director for the Emergency Medicine Residency. I'm Ashley Amick. I'm dual boarded in internal and emergency medicine. My primary appointment is through the Department of Emergency Medicine, but I also practice 50% of my clinical time as a hospitalist. And I do also have a small administrative role as well, working on transitions of care. And so you in particular get to work on both sides of this equation, the potential conflicts that we're going to talk about. How did this come to be a project for the two of you? How did you find one another? Yeah, so we found each other through our medical education research fellowship here at the University of Washington, which we ended about almost a year ago now. It's funny, we both became interested in this topic completely independently before we met each other. I think for me, just personally, this is something that I've always wanted to fix and I've wanted to be better is our communication and improve our interactions with our colleagues. And my husband's actually also an internist, so something that I talk about a lot at home as well. And Ashley and I met for the first time. She had finished training a little bit before me, so she was my attending for (laughs) the first time we met each other. And we got started talking about this. And of course, from her background, this is something she's always thought about is, you know, what it means to be on both sides of the equation. Mm And the people listening to this can't see the way that you and I are looking at each other right now, but you are sitting in the San Juan Islands, I understand. Can you explain to those listening a little bit about your process and the context that leads me to point out your location? Yeah. So once we started working together and we realized this was something that we were really passionate about, and yet at the same time, we knew that this was something we were going to have to be really transparent with each other and the rest of our team. These are topics that really you know, they tug at people's heartstrings, they bring up people's ire, it's challenging. So we started just kind of rifting and spending time together. The first couple times we were going through a fairly extensive literature review and we were just, you know, we had the opportunity to be in San Juan because through the fellowship. And so that creative and collaborative time where we were really just spitballing, putting ideas on post-its and throwing, you know, just really kind of trying to dig into this. We found that experience really wonderful and really different from the other experiences I had had in research. And so we actually write together exclusively too in the same room because we bounce a lot of things off of each other. We play off each other a lot and we check each other when we feel that we're becoming too emotionally invested or that we're sort of interpreting things through one lens versus another. So we are at a research retreat, which we've now carried on the tradition, and we rented a VRBO up here. And it's beautiful. It's wonderful and serene, and we get a lot of work done, and then we have fun. Yeah. We've got a good puzzle going on behind the computer here that we'll work on later. <laughs> but it's a really great place to reflect and relax, and I think it's a great way to be productive, but also make sure that we're balancing our work life a little bit. 
Oh, so good. And I'm very jealous as I sit in a dark, gloomy Vancouver office, but it sounds wonderful. So coming back to the topic, this conflict between physicians of different specialties, you know, I suspect that anybody who's ever watched a medical drama of any kind has seen the conflict, right? It's part of even the lay understanding of what happens in medicine. What were you able to find in that literature review in terms of what was previously known and building off of that? What was the particular gap that you saw there that you thought needed to be filled? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a good amount of literature in sort of the workplace organizational management literature on conflict in the workplace. And that has certainly seeped into healthcare. There's a good amount talking about nurse-nurse interactions and bullying and horizontal violence. And of course, there has been literature talking about physician-to-physician conflict and disagreement. And most of that has really focused on how can we communicate better? What are some structures we can use that we can make sure that we're communicating in a way that makes sense to both sides? And some of it has touched on the primers for conflict as well. But what we really wanted to understand was the social dynamic. Like what is happening in those conversations? Mm -hmm. What is the social fabric that's sort of creating this conflict? And of course, the flip side, like what is the social dynamic when it goes well? Because of course, a lot of times it does go well. I think also there's a concept in medicine that we're all taught in medical school, which is this idea of a just culture, you know, really coming to the table, open and honest, trying to hear your colleagues' thoughts and give people the benefit of the doubt. And especially when I started to transition over to emergency medicine training, I was shocked by what I was seeing. And I think it's very, very helpful to have structured consultation frameworks. I think that's really important. But there was something more there. There was something social. There's something that's embedded in the culture of medicine, the hidden curriculum that predisposes us for behaviors that we would in any other circumstance, considered to be unacceptable. (laughs) And for me, it became a very, very poignant experience when I would be on the other side of the phone talking to my colleagues, they wouldn't know it was me. And I would get a completely different attitude, completely different conversational respect, depending on whether or not they knew who I was and what my other certification was. And that really incensed me. That's not fair. That's not acceptable. And the duplicity in that is really obvious. As opposed to sort of coming at a place, let's make this better. We acknowledge that we don't know what this is. We don't know what's going on. We all sort of start out in med school, most of us anyway, as sort of like pluripotent stem cells, and then we differentiate. But somewhere along the way, we learn to pejoratize our fellow physicians. And that really led to fairly open exploration. And once we began interviewing, I think we saw something we didn't really expect to see. And that's the beauty of qualitative research. So so one of you used the word earlier, sensitivity, or this is a sensitive topic. And even the two of you working together needed to be explicit and aware of any emotions that arose as you started exploring this. How did you manage to get data that you trusted from your participants, given the potential that they might have felt conflict, even in your interviews? 
Yeah, that started very much during the interviews and being thoughtful about who was interviewing who. So for instance, I would interview emergency medicine folks and Ashley would do both sides. That was purposeful. We wanted everyone to feel like they could be open with a member of their own group and honest. Certainly some people might be more shy in that scenario, but I think in general, it allowed them to be more thoughtful about their answers and more honest and open. And then of course, as we went through the process, we did a lot of checking in with each other, but with the rest of our research group as well, which included from both internal medicine and emergency medicine. And Stephanie, as a social scientist, is a really nice reality test for us when we get totally embroiled in our own <laughs> in our own politics and issues. Yeah. She was a wonderful, almost like a cleansing of the palate when <laughs> in, in our discussions, yeah. we got a little too heated, I think. The other thing I'll say too is it's a unique scenario when you're a researcher, but you're also a colleague. And I think that can be detrimental and that sometimes folks won't want to be honest. But with regard to this, I think there's enough exhaustion with this problem and this impacts physicians enough that we were fairly astounded by how honest people were being. And we encouraged them to use their own vernacular, like, you know, don't hold back. Don't yeah. hold back. This is a safe space. These are all de-identified. And it became something that was actually fairly easy to get out of people. And the probing questions that we would use were really just complimentary. People were more than happy to share their story and their sense of like, it honestly felt like very doing indignant. therapy. It yeah. felt like doing therapy with our colleagues. Multiple people said that. They <laughs> yeah. said, I should pay you to be the therapist. <laughs> uh, well, and, and the fact that you found things that you didn't expect, uh, you, you just alluded to a couple minutes ago, that, that you, the conversations went in directions that you weren't anticipating. That alone is a good sign, I suppose, that you actually got from them their you know, genuine impressions. What fell into that category? What were you not expecting? So I think the level of honesty, I also think the profound impact this had on everyone. As you said, it's been popularized in lay TV and other, you know, other avenues, but we did not know that this was something that bothered everyone. There's kind of this attitude in healthcare, stiff upper lip, this is the way things are, this is how it's always been, and don't worry about them, just, you know, who cares what they think? And actually, everybody cares what their colleagues think, more or less. It's, a, it's very, very demoralizing to be treated poorly by someone who should be your equal. Yeah. And I think for me also, there was just some very practical things. It was very eye-opening to me as far as some things I can take away when I communicate with my internal medicine colleagues. For instance, one of the things that really came to light was how bothered internal medicine folks can be when emergency medicine doctor goes to them and says, this patient needs to be admitted and uses that word needs, especially in a setting with some clinical uncertainty. And it really made our participants feel like their expertise on the other side of that conversation was not valued. And that's something that I have certainly taken away and I've already started to teach to trainees is like, hey, you can phrase that slightly differently. Like I have a patient that I think needs to be admitted for X, Y, and Z. And saying it just slightly differently, it doesn't take away your decision-making or your power, but it gives them a space to have a conversation with you. So that's just one of those like practical things that I took away. Yeah, well, and, and often we quickly get to the in-group, out-group sort of thing that, you know, one 
specialty sticks together because they better relate to that specialty and it's us against the world. And those category labels we know, they can be random and still cause people to treat people within better than people outside. But what you just said indicates that that often comes about just by simple communication patterns as opposed to it's necessarily fundamentally something about you're different and we're better. Right, right. I mean, I think the idea of the team framework was... First of all, the use of team and battle metaphors was something that struck us right away. Just the use of language really showed how adversarial the relationship can be. And so while we definitely understood, you know, we're exploring the negative elements of being on an opposing team and what the implications are for that when you should be united in the care of the same patient, we also focused on times where things went really well, times where you felt very positive about your interactions with your colleagues. And uniformly, everybody spoke about mutual teaching, mutual respect, and this idea of being more open in a conversation such that you're not solely advancing your own prerogative, but you're inviting somebody to the table. You're inviting somebody onto your team. Hey, this is what I'm thinking about this patient. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Please come down and join me and let's evaluate together because this is a complex case. Things like that really make people feel valued, feel feel like they're an important component to the care of the patient as opposed to just somebody putting in admission orders. And importantly, it sounds like things that don't cost any more in terms of time or energy or resource or anything. Is it where the start of your title, who's on your team, comes from? You're trying to lead people to question Yeah, exactly. We want them to expand their idea of who is on the team. You know, it isn't just the emergency department or the acute care internal medicine team. It's all of us in the care of the patient. And that team is flexible too, right? Like internal medicine might not be on my team if I have a patient that I discharge, but I'm inviting them onto my team when I have a patient we're going to take care of together. The idea, especially of the fact that a team can either be functional and you can be united on one team or someone can be on an oppositional team and sort of constraining your ability to do what you think is right for the patient. That idea came up over and over and over again and really folds into other elements of group identity that we explored. But it was very eye-opening how pervasive this was, how strong the emotions were. People were really, really hurt, upset, really doubted their own clinical abilities. And it's very clear, having spoken with these folks, that this is something we need to try to work on. Um, But before, you know, tackling it, we really have to have a rich and nuanced understanding of how does this form? What is happening? Why does this happen? Why why is it so pervasive? Well, and so recognizing that any problem that lasts for decades is going to be complex. There's not going to be a simple solution. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But with that caveat aside, you just alluded to some, or in fact, you said it right, some practical things that you can start to do in terms of coaching your trainees. Any other suggestions at this stage of your understanding that you would offer to people who are trying to make the world a better place, for lack of a better phrase? (laughs) So I think, I think Caitlin alluded to this, but reimagining your team. It's really not about us as providers in terms of advancing a prerogative. And I think sometimes that can be lost, particularly in emergency medicine training, where we have to be mindful of flow. We have to be mindful of getting people where they need to be from a dispositional standpoint. But at the same time, 
we need to do what's right for the patient and we need to function effectively as a team across both specialties. And so taking time, which takes very little time and may actually save time to build respect, to build rapport, to invite folks to the table for a conversation. That is number one thing is the minute you have a negative thought about a colleague or a specialty group as a whole, right now, what I would say is just stop and reflect. Where does it come from? Is it just? Is it substantiated? And remember that this is about the patient. This is not about us. Yeah. And I think for educators, a big thing we just all need to be considering is how we're role modeling to our trainees. It certainly came out in our data, the use of stereotypes or dehumanizing a group and calling them, you know, the emergency department or the internal medicine people, rather than speaking to them and about them as individuals, it gets ingrained in our trainees and then they start doing the same thing. So it's important that when we have those thoughts that we keep them to ourselves and reflect on them and be really mindful about how we're presenting those things to our learners. Well, you two are clearly living your words in terms of striving for effective collaboration. So <laughs> I'll wrap up by just saying congratulations on having found such a, an effective collaboration, first and foremost, but even more so on the work that's coming from it. So glad to know that you're on recruit again and are working on the next thing. And we'll look forward to seeing that. The voices you've been hearing belong to Caitlin Strapel and Ashley Amick, both from University of Washington. And we've been discussing their paper, Who's on Your Team? especially the identity and interphysician conflict during admission that you can find in the June 2022 issue of Medical Education. Thanks to both of you and good luck with whatever comes next. Thank you yeah, so thank much. You. Thank you.